If you join me in Bible study tonight, please open up your Bible to the book of Galatians to chapter 1. We're still in the introduction to Galatians, which sets forth the problem, the issue. The issue is, how do people get saved? Are we saved through works, or are we saved by faith? Paul has gone through and taught salvation by faith, and many people responded. They got saved, they got baptized. Then Paul went away. Here comes other people going, nah, Paul got it wrong. Paul got it wrong. You're saved through circumcision. Entering into the covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants. Was that covenant salvation by works? Nope. No. With Abraham, the covenant was salvation by faith. Genesis chapter 15, and Abraham believed God, and God accounted to him for righteousness. And according to the scriptures, that was sealed with the blood of Messiah. Once a covenant is sealed, can it be broken? Nope. Answer is no. What does God say in Psalm 89, 34? My covenant I will not break, not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my mouth. If it's passed through my lips, he said, I will not take it back. What happened in 1 Kings chapter 13 when a prophet thought God would change a commandment? He got eaten by lions. How many want to be eaten by lions? Yeah, not totally eaten. There was enough left to identify. This guy did badly. Why should that prophet have known better? God would never, never strike somebody down for something they had no way of knowing was wrong. But in Deuteronomy 13, God had said, if a prophet tells you essentially that I've broken my word, don't you believe it? I'm just testing you. Will you be faithful to my commandments or not? So yeah, the prophet should have known better. But certainly now we should know better than to think that God will give us a commandment and then break it. Not going to happen. So we're in Galatians chapter 1 verse 19. We're talking about the Apostle Paul giving his personal testimony and why they should believe him over some random guy that came up from Jerusalem to say hey, Paul was wrong. So Paul's telling them, I did not get my doctrine from another man. I was taught directly from the Lord. So who were these people that came up and talked to you and told you I was wrong? They didn't even know who it was. It was just somebody. I have a, an inkling of what Paul felt like. I am not Paul by any stretch of the imagination. <clears throat> but I've had people sit here in the congregation for 10 years or more. And then They'll send me an email or a phone call and say, Oh, I went to church this Sunday and the pastor said, There ain't no rapture. Why did you lie to us? I say, What's, What was his scriptural basis? Well, he didn't give us any. So what did he do? Well, he just said, There isn't any. Um, what does the Bible say? That's what we learn from Acts chapter 13 in the Bereans. Whatever you're taught, 
go bounce it against the word of God because the word of God does not change. Okay, I digress. Verse 19. Actually, we haven't started yet, have we? <laughs> but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. There's many James in the scriptures. His name's actually Jacob, but we won't fuss over that. But which James is this? When they say the Lord's brother... It's his half-brother, the son of Mary and Joseph. In Acts chapter 15, flip over to Acts chapter 15, we find that he was the Nasi, N-A-S-I. Nasi means the leader of the Jerusalem council. He was the leader of all the apostles. It was not Peter. It was James. How do we know? Because it says so right here in the scriptures. In verse 13 it says, And after they had become silent, James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Then he explains the testimony of Simon Peter and the prophecies that underlie it in the Old Testament. Then he says in verse 19, Therefore I judge... The one who announces the judgment of the council is called the Nasi. And it tells you who is in charge. He is the leader of Peter, Paul, James, and John, all those guys. We should not trouble those from among the Gentiles. Talking about the issue that came down from Galatia, which is in verse 1. Let's read that again, verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they taught them that salvation is by circumcision, which was Jewish theology then, remains Jewish theology today. It's what they give us in the Talmud, that if you're circumcised, you're saved. If you're uncircumcised, you're not saved. <clears throat> nice and easy. Unfortunately, it's just not right. Just not true. So among those Gentiles who are turning to God, what is that I-N-G meaning on turning? Process. In the process. They want to do what's right, so how do they know what's right? Verse 20, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled and from blood. Those four things characterize the pagan temples. So the first thing is, if you want to turn from paganism to worship the true and living God, you've got to quit acting like a pagan. You've got to quit worshiping like they worship. Turn away from that stuff. But then, how do you learn what to do? Verse 21 says, for, I'm in Acts chapter 15. We've just gotten to verse 21. You're welcome. The first word in verse 21 is for, which means because. Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So where can these Gentiles who are in the process of turning to God go to learn what God requires of us? They go to the synagogue where the Torah is being read every Sabbath. Can they go into the synagogues with their ham sandwiches and prostitutes? No. You've got to turn aside from the pagan idolatry and then come into the synagogue and learn. 
And what do we see in Acts chapter 13? Who is Paul t talking to in the synagogues? The Jews and the Gentiles. Those that are turning to God. Who've come to hear the gospel. Okay, so Acts 15 tells us that James, the half-brother of Messiah, is the leader of the apostles. Which should be jaw-dropping. Are you all stunned? Because let's go back to, say, Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. The last time we saw James, he was not a believer. James chapter 6. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6, sorry. It's James we're going to talk about. We're going to do it in Mark chapter 6. Let's start in verse 2 for context. The key verse, though, is 3. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. Who's the he? Yeshua. And where's Yeshua teaching? In the synagogue? In the synagogue? On Shabbat? Really? Yes. Not the First Baptist Church on Sunday morning? No. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What are they really asking? What school did he attend? Which is Shiva? What wisdom is this which is given to him as such mighty works performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? It's not carpenter, by the way. It's a stonemason. It comes from the Hebrew word builder, which is bana. And from bana we get the word evan. The word evan is stone. In Israel, back in those days, you didn't use trees that grew in Israel to build houses and furniture. When they wanted wood for the temple, where did they get the wood? From Lebanon. Because the wood in Israel were olive trees and other kinds of fruit trees, things that you eat from. The houses and furniture were made mostly out of stone. But the son of Mary, notice they don't say the son of Joseph, but the son of Mary. And the brother of James, that's the James who's the Nazi, who wrote the book of James. Joseph is Joseph. Judas is Judah. And Simon, Shimon. And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. And then in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Here's the parallel teaching from Matthew. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? So both Matthew and Mark tell us that he is the half-brother of Messiah. And let's go back to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. Here comes his family. As people are thinking that maybe this Yeshua fellow is just a marble or two short of a bag. 
In verse 20, but when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. So his family, instead of saying, hey, this is the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, are going, well, you got to understand, he's, he's just not, not all there. In John chapter 7, we find it this way. John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Is there anywhere in the scripture where they tell us who his sisters are? I've never heard Nope, they never tell us his sister's names. Which is interesting because you could actually be a descendant of one of Messiah's sisters. And you just never know. John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourselves to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. That includes James. At that point, he did not believe in him. So let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. What happened? What changed between, hey, he's out of his mind, and hey, he's the Messiah and Savior of us all? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 7. For context, we'll start in verse 3, so you understand verse 7 a little better. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Messiah died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried, and that he arose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter. The Hebrew is Kepha, K-E-F-A. Then by the twelve... After that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. So here is his own brother, a younger brother, but not too much younger, who said he was out of his mind, pay him no mind, because he didn't believe in him. And now he meets the risen Yeshua. Can you imagine a conversation? Hey, little brother. Let me tell you, you're an idiot. <laughs> Let's start from there and build on it. But oh, by the way, you're still an idiot. Okay. Back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 20. Now concerning the things which I write to you. Indeed, before God, I do not lie. What is there in verse 20? Now concerning things which I write to you, indeed, before God, I do not lie. That is an oath. That is an oath on the name of God. Would Paul <clears throat> lie in an oath on the name of God? No. So what he's doing is they would know this. Paul would never, ever 
take an oath that contained a lie and do it on the name of God. Because what does the scripture say if you take the name of the Lord in vain? What's that? You're cursed. Yeah. So this is his way to saying, you can trust what I'm telling you. I'm putting my own soul on risk. Verse 21. Afterward, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. How long was he there in the regions of Syria and Cilicia? He was there about six years. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, verse 30. Yes, ma'am. You said if you use the Lord's name in vain, you're cursed. Yes. What does that detail? I mean, I hear people using God's name in vain all the time. Is, you know, God, is that the same thing? It's, it's not. The main thing the verse is, the commandment is, is aim and at, but yes, that's included in it. If you take the name in vain, it means to make it common, to make it not special, to make it not mean anything. So if you lie and you swear in the name of God, what did you say God's name means to you? Not a thing. When you use it in a curse, as people do so often, and it just burns your ears. What are they saying about how much the name of God means to them? Nothing. Nothing. That's right. So that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Thank you. Yep. Acts chapter 9, verse 30. When the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him out to Tarsus. Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. And then it goes from there all the way through chapter 11, verse 26. Paul is going to be out there. Let's go back to um, Galatians chapter 1. In the regions of Syria and Cilicia. His point is, of course, I was not in Jerusalem saying, hey guys, tell me what you know. Teach me. He was taught by the Lord. He was off by himself. He was teaching others. In verse 22, it says, And I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Messiah. What he means by that is though churches were evangelized by others, they were planted by others. They were led by others. They didn't need me. And I wasn't sitting in the pews there learning from the other apostles. Verse 23. But they were hearing only, quote, He who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy and they glorified God in me. Now, we pick up this story in chapter 2, verse 1. And then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. First thing you got to know is who is Barnabas? Barnabas was a wealthy Levite from the island of Cyprus.
What was he supposed to be doing if he was a Levite in Cyprus? He should have been working in the temple if he was in the land of Israel, but he's not. So when the Levites are scattered among the people, they're supposed to be teaching them the scriptures. Teaching them the Torah. Teach them the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God. Then how come he's wealthy? That's another question. <laughs> Something tells me he's been focusing on things other than teaching the scriptures to the people. Of course, I don't know him personally. We'll let the Lord judge. But I think when he heard the gospel message and his heart changed, he decided, now I need to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing. The word Levi, Levi, means to join to. The tribe of Levi was to join the people to the Lord. One of the terms for the false Messiah is Leviathan, right? Which comes from the Hebrew words Levi, to join to, and Tanin, the serpent. So the false Messiah will be trying to get people joined to Satan, not to God. What are you about Titus? Jew or Gentile? Gentile. Gentile. That's right. Verse 2. And I went up by revelation, meaning what? God told him to go. And communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But privately to those who have reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. That's Acts chapter 11. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 11. That's when this takes place. So again, we're not up to the Acts chapter 15 incident. It comes after the book of Galatians. Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Then one of them, referring to the prophets in verse 27 that came from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that he's a prophet, prophesying in the Spirit of the Lord, that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul, Saul also being called Paul. So he's explaining here why he came down to Jerusalem. It still wasn't to come have Peter and James and the others teach me about Messiah. It was because there was this famine and we were bringing gifts and offerings from throughout Asia Minor to Jerusalem to aid those in need. So that's why he came. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 2. That's why he comes in chapter 2. He says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now, this is so very significant because of when and where it occurs. 
He took Titus with him to Jerusalem to see Peter, James, John, all the other apostles. And did they jump back in horror and say, Gentile, Gentile, he's uncircumcised? The answer is no. No. He says, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek that is a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. None of the other apostles said, hey, wait a minute. You can't bring him here. He's not saved because he's not circumcised. None of them were of the opinion that salvation came through circumcision. They all knew that salvation was by faith. So he says from the very first time we got together and talked about salvation, we all agreed that salvation was by faith. That's the inner circle. Unfortunately, it's not everybody. But the inner circle. So none of the apostles said, hey, wait a minute, he's not saved because you didn't have him circumcised. What does the scripture say about circumcision in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? Nope. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19. Circumcision is nothing. And uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. So it's absolutely clear from the scriptures that salvation is by faith, not by works, not even by circumcision. Circumcision, if you go back and read through, through the book of Genesis, is a sign of the covenant, not the sign. What's the difference between a sign and the sign? It's one of at least multiples. The other is circumcision of the heart. So every one of us must be circumcised of the heart. That's where it really comes down to it. Verse 4, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have a Messiah, Yeshua, that they might bring us into bondage. What do you notice, do you notice about verse 4 when it says, this occurred? It's in italic, so it's not in the original. You would read this to think, this occurred, that they tried to force him to be circumcised. But they didn't. So just scratch out this occurred. What verse 4 is trying to communicate is the issue has now arisen and they're trying to force you to get circumcised because these people that have come in and taught you wrong it says they came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Messiah Yeshua, that they might bring us into bondage. They want us to return to their theology of salvation by works. Yes, sir. Where are we reading from? We're in Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. Okay. Sorry, that's probably the red number one out here, too. Where are we? Let's see.
Rachel says 1 Corinthians 7.19. She's saying I got this site wrong. Let's go back and look. It's 1 Corinthians 7.19. Yep. Thank you, Rachel. Yep. I looked at it wrong. Yeah. Darn it. So we're back to Galatians chapter 2 verse 4. There's only an issue here. Because there are those who want salvation to be by works. And not by faith. Because circumcision. Oh that's easy. That's usually done on the boy when he's 8 days old. He doesn't even know anything about it. And then they can grow up and do anything they want to. And God's just happy with them. They're all sinless and perfect, right? No, no. What people have always wanted to do is, if God told me not to do it, I want to do it. And if he told me to do it, I don't want to. Who's he to tell me what I can do and not do? The answer to that is, he's God. And come judgment day, we're going to wish we had put our faith in him. So that's what's going on here. Yeah. These are Pharisees who believe that they must follow the man-made rules, not the God-given commandments. And the Pharisees, they also want to control the people. The Pharisees want to control the people. They want to be honored. They want to be worshipped, if you will. Yes. They want to be they want the best seats, Messiah says, at all the festivals and gatherings. They want to be honored. They want people to bow down to them. It has nothing to do with God. It's yep. all about man. Right. Yeah, sounds a lot like the world we live in today. Yes. So, verse 4. I don't want to glance over it too quickly. False brethren. They claim to be believers. What does it mean when he call, calls them false brethren? They're not really believers, are they? They're false teachers. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. They're teaching the people, Paul taught you wrong. You can't be saved by faith. You must earn it by doing what we tell you. I don't want to get off on a, on a Ibex trail, but does that not exactly encompass Catholic doctrine? Yes which says you cannot be saved by faith. You can only be saved by following the sacraments of the Catholic Church. So you must do what we tell you to do, how we tell you to do it. Otherwise, you can't be saved. But that's not Bible. The Pharisees and the Catholic Church did exactly the same thing. They both said our doctrine takes precedence over the scriptures. Where is that in the Bible? Answer is nowhere. That's why my philosophy is what does the Bible say? So false brethren secretly brought in. Secretly, meaning they didn't get approval from the council in Jerusalem. They were not sent by the apostles. They came stealthily, secretly to try and undo all that Paul was doing. I suspect they were from the school of Shammai. There are two main schools of the Pharisees. The school of Hallel and the school of Shammai. And the school of Shammai taught God can only save Jews. 
So if you want to be saved, you must become a Jew. And how do you become Jewish if you're a Gentile? Through circumcision. They didn't want Gentiles in the ranks. They need to go back and look at history then. Abraham was a Gentile. Yep, yeah. <laughs> but they forgot that. Oh, accidentally on purpose. Yeah. So came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Messiah Yeshua, that they might bring us into bondage. The liberty which we have in Messiah Yeshua comes from what? Faith. It's not just faith. Go up to the book of James. To the book of James. Chapter 1, verse 25. Yep, James chapter 1, verse 25. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty. The Torah brings liberty, not bondage. To spy out our liberty. James chapter 1 verse 25. What did the Lord say in 1 John chapter 5 verses 2 and 3? Let's look at 1 John chapter 5 verses 2 and 3. First John chapter 5 verses 2 and 3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. But what did the scribes and Pharisees do with God's non-burdensome commandments? They build fences around. If God gave a total of 613 commandments, and you can argue the number because many of those are redundant, how many fences did the scribes and Pharisees build? Tens of thousands. Tens of thousands. Their man-made rules and regulations, they were burdensome. God's Torah is a Torah of liberty. Verse 5. Referring to these false teachers. Says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 5. To whom we did not yield submission even for an hour. That the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul says we rebuked the false teachers. We had nothing to do with them. We would not listen to them. We followed the advice of every one of the apostles. Messiah himself told us about the false teachers. What should we do with a false teacher? Run. Run. Don't listen. Just don't listen. So Paul says, we would not listen to salvation by works even for an hour. 
simply wasn't true and we weren't going to tolerate it. Chapter 2, verse 6. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. I mean, it doesn't matter who they were. Whether they were angels sent by Satan, that is, fallen angels, or whoever they were, he doesn't care. God shows personal favoritism to no man. Meaning what? Rich or poor, black or white, male or female, doesn't matter to God. What matters to God is your heart. These false teachers did not have a heart for God. It says, for those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Paul says, my doctrine came from the Lord. Nobody added to it. Nobody changed it. Nobody took away from it. What better teacher can you have than the Lord himself? Verse 7 says, but on the contrary. Now he's going to talk about Peter. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised, meaning what? The Gentiles have been committed to me as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter. Oh, that's something to think about when you're discussing theology with Catholic adherents. Paul was sent to the Gentiles. Peter was sent to the Jews. That's why the scriptures say Paul went west and Peter went east. The scriptures don't ever record Peter being in Rome at all, do they? And isn't it St. Peter in the Roman Catholic Church? Yeah. They hold him Yeah. Yep. They, have, they yeah. worship Peter, don't they? Yeah. yeah, they got early. Verse 8. <laughs> Four. He who worked effectively in Peter for his apostleship to the circumcised, that being whom? The Holy Spirit. Also worked effectively in me <clears throat> toward the Gentiles. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I don't want to make fun of any other religion. I just don't want y'all to get misled by them either. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 17 says, But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Meaning if you have been saved by faith, you are filled with the Holy Spirit, which is the spirit of the Lord. So you're of one heart, one mind, one accord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. But one and the same Spirit, notice it's capitalized, works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. 
So the same Holy Spirit that indwells you, indwells me, indwells her, indwells him, indwelled Paul, indwelled Peter. The very same. If you have been saved by faith, one spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. <clears throat> Notice how spirit's capitalized here. In the Old Testament, when you see across, come across a word like spirit that's capitalized, that means that the translators decided to capitalize it. But in the New Testament, the Greek documents have both uppercase and lowercase letters. Hebrew doesn't have uppercase and lowercase. No capital letters. But Greek does. So the Greek here indicates this spirit is the Holy Spirit. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. If you remember, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and following are all about the fact that whether you were a Jew or a Gentile before you got saved is irrelevant. Once saved, we're one new man. And verse 18 says, For through him, that's through our Messiah Yeshua, we both have access by one Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father. There's not two gods, there's not two Holy Spirits. One God, one Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4.4. 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all. Who is above all and through all and in you all. So this says our God and Father dwells in our hearts. 1 John chapter 5. Some of you will say, wait a minute, we were just there. Yes, but this is for a different verse. 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. You guys all know I do not believe in a trinity, that we have three gods sitting around a campfire. 1 John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. one. Just like the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Oh! That's my next reference. Go back to Deuteronomy 6 4.
6-4? Yep, Deuteronomy 6-4. That's the Shema. What does that word Shema mean? Shema is a command to hear. Okay, thank you. Yep. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's an exclamation mark at the end because that word here is a command. This is one of the most important scriptures to the Jewish people. It identifies the fact that there is only one God, only one Lord. He may manifest himself as Father or as Son or as Holy Spirit or as all three. There are people that say, that's not possible. If he manifests his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there must be three persons, separate, distinct. How many Holy Spirits are there? One. Well, is he in you or me? He's in all of us. That's right. How can the Holy Spirit be in all of us? Because God is where? Everywhere. Everywhere. Yep. Okay. okay. So how does that compare to the seven spirits in Revelation and Isaiah 11? Yes, let's go back to Isaiah 11 because Isaiah 11 explains Revelation chapter 5 and 6 which refers to, does it say seven spirits or sevenfold spirit? Let's see. Isaiah chapter 11. Verse 2. This count, count out loud. The spirit of the Lord, that's one. Show us upon him the spirit of wisdom, that's two. And understanding, that's three. Spirit of counsel, that's four. And might, that's five. The spirit of knowledge, that's six. And of the fear of the Lord, that's seven. Now let's go to Revelation 5. Where would you add Isaiah? Isaiah 11, verse 2. Sorry. Isaiah 11, verse 2. Now we're going to Revelation chapter 5. Let's see. Somebody out here has a question. Sevenfold, i.e. seven characteristics. That's right, Susie. Seven characteristics. Revelation chapter 5. Verse 6. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. So are there seven spirits, or is it a sevenfold spirit? I argue it's a sevenfold spirit. Seven characteristics. Revelation 5, what? Verse 6. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, the last one on this topic is Romans chapter 3, verse 29. Or is he the God of the Jews only? 
Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Meaning what? We're all saved the same way, and that is by faith. Okay, let's go back to Galatians chapter 2. That is the issue of Galatians. People think the issue is once a Gentile gets saved, should they keep the commandments of God? That's not the issue. The issue is how does a Gentile get saved in the first place? Verse 9. And when James, Cephas, who's Cephas? That's Peter. And John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. That's amazing. That's amazing? Paul and Barnabas go to the Gentiles. Yeah, Paul and Barnabas and go to the 11, Gentiles. And the other 11 or 12 go, get to go to all the Jews. Yeah, <coughs> but Paul doesn't go by himself. I know. Remember, he's got Barnabas, and he's got Titus, and, and he's got Timothy, Mark. and he's got Mark, and he's got Luke. Yeah, he ends up with a whole traveling band. The Jews may have been a harder audience. But remember, Paul also goes to the Jews first and then the Gentiles everywhere he goes. Yes, always. You didn't know that? Well, let's turn to Acts chapter 17. Let's go to Acts chapter 17 and see what it says. What does the Bible say? Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. That's the first thing he does everywhere he goes, is go to the synagogue. I remember now. You remember now? All righty. Back to Galatians 2. Back to Galatians 2. So Paul and Barnabas have come and they've met Peter. And they've met James. And they've met John. And they realize that God called Paul and Barnabas to go on this mission to the Gentiles. And they're happy to send them along the way because they don't want to go to the Gentiles. Happy for Paul and Barnabas to go carry that load. means they were in agreement with us. You didn't go through a line and have to shake everybody's hand? Or no, it meant that they were all in agreement. Okay. No disagreement. See, in some churches, like if you were called to preach or whatever, you can't preach or minister to anyone until you get the right hand of fellowship from so many other pastors in line, and you have to go through, and you have the, the handshake meant that they approved you. Okay. You know, the church. Sort of, yeah. yeah sort, of, <laughs> sort, of, sort of, yeah. I was just wanting to make sure I understood. Ordination. 
should be and always has been through the smicha, which is a laying on of hands. Verse 10, they desired only, that is, they've given them a caveat. Yes, go to the Gentiles, but there's something we want you to be sure that you do. They desired only that we should remember the poor. Remember that prophecy of Agabus? Remember the poor and bring back offerings and gifts from all the Gentile regions you go to back to the poor believers in Jerusalem. And it says, the very thing which I also was eager to do. Let's go back to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 29. We saw it before, but we need to circle back to it because this is why Peter, James, and John encouraged Paul and Barnabas to collect these gifts and offerings to bring back. Acts 11, 27 to 29. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. So in Peter, James, and John gave their seal of approval to Paul's mission. It was with the caveat, don't forget the poor back here. This famine is coming. They're going to need your relief. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, we see not only was Paul willing to do it, he actually did it. 1 sorry, First Chronicles 16. 1 Corinthians, oh, I'm so sorry. Slow down. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you just put one C, there's all kinds of things that could be. It, did I say it right the first time? Okay, 1 Corinthians. Then let's take the law of averages. Average them all. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, that's the one from Acts chapter 11, the one that James, Peter, and John encouraged them to do. As I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, I notice days in italics. It says on one of the Sabbaths. Let each one of you lay something aside, stirring up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Why the reference to on one of the Sabbaths? One of what Sabbaths? There are seven Sabbaths between Passover and the Feast of Weeks or Shavuot or Pentecost. Paul has taken a Nazarite vow and you end the Nazarite vow in Jerusalem at Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost. So on one of the weeks in between, he's going to pass through. He will take up the collection. He'll take it with him. When he gets to Jerusalem for Shavuot, he will distribute the funds. Romans chapter 15. 
Romans chapter 15. Paul again makes reference to the fact that he is taking these gifts and offerings back to the poor in Jerusalem. Romans chapter 15 verses 25 to 27. He says, but now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Therefore, when I perform this and have sealed to them this fruit, I shall go by way of you to Spain. So Paul tells the Romans, I want to come to you, but I have to do this first. I've taken up all these collections. I got to get it back to Jerusalem, to the poor for whom it's intended. And did he do that? Yes, he did. Let's go back to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Remember, this is still part of the letter to the Galatians where Paul is saying, I didn't learn from these other apostles. I'm not subordinate to or lesser than these other apostles. He says, in fact, Peter was wrong, and I had to tell him to his face he was wrong. Why? We're going to read 11 to 13. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, James being the leader of the apostles, remember, down in Jerusalem, yes. he would eat with the Gentiles, that is, with the Gentile believers. Are the Gentile believers eating pigs? No. no. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. I can't tell you how many times I've been told, see, Peter's sitting down eating pigs, shrimps, lobsters, he's just porking out. Until people come from James. That's not what happened. Let's go back to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Verses 28 and 29. Peter's had that vision. At the end of the vision, did he go get himself a ham sandwich? He did not. He wondered what it meant until there was a knock at the door. Everybody knocked three times. That's how many times the voice from heaven had said, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I've never eaten anything common or unclean. And the voice from heaven said, What I've called cleansed, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. 
That happened how many times? Three. Three times. How many men came from Cornelius? Three. Three times. Three men. Verse 28. They said to them, You know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one of another nation. Whose law is that? That's rabbinic. That's not God's law. In fact, God had said in the prophets that the gospel was to go to all people. It says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked them, for what reason have you sent for me? Same chapter, starting in verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. That is, no partiality between Jew and non-Jew. But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Are those people going to be eating pigs, shrimps, and lobsters? The answer is no. They're which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Yeshua the Messiah. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Yeshua of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And by the way, tree is a correct word there. Him God raised up on the third day and showed him openly. Not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, it is he who is ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witnessed that through his name whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. <clears throat> and those of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Now go back to Galatians chapter 2. It is Peter who reported all this to the other apostles. And now, <clears throat> Peter is eating with believing Gentiles who are not eating pigs, shrimps, and lobsters. But when Jewish people come up from James, they back away and say, oh, oh you're not good enough. We can't associate. You see why Paul called him a hypocrite? That's kind of like when he denied Christ. Yeah. Same character flaw. So I didn't hear what she said. Same character flaw as when he denied Messiah the three times. Yeah. So Peter is quite willing to associate with the believing Gentiles as long as there's no Jews around. 
when the Jews are around, he's now standoffish and you're not good enough to be in my presence. And Paul rebuked him for it and said, that's wrong and you know it. He could have said, do you need to see the Talit come down from heaven again, Peter? <laughs> yep, we all have our faults and flaws. Peter was the oldest of the twelve. John was the youngest. So, how old he is, he's old enough to know better. There you go. Back to Galatians chapter 2. We're up to verse 14. What? Yes, ma'am. Right. So would that be a caveat for Peter that he didn't want to make the other Jews? I don't know. Was, could that have been his thinking that he didn't want them to stumble? If that had been his thinking, would Paul have rebuked him to his face? No. Probably yeah, probably not. Her question was maybe Peter just didn't want to make his brothers stumble. And I said, well, if that had been the case, he just didn't want to make his brother stumble. If it was something honorable, would Paul have rebuked him to his face? To his face kind of means in front of everybody. Called him on the carpet. So I wasn't there, but probably not. Because when I say in verse 13, the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them. Hypocrite means pretending to be something that they're not. No, it doesn't get Peter's response at all. It doesn't sound like Peter tried to defend himself. It was more like, whoops, I did bad. So verse 14, when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, that is salvation is by faith for everybody. So these Gentiles that have been saved by faith have repented of their sins and are walking uprightly. Are they second-class citizens in the church? No, that's what Ephesians chapter 2 is all about. There were some who thought that the believing Gentiles were second-class citizens, and Paul let them know that's not right. doesn't matter what you were before you got saved. What matters is that you got saved. So verse 14, But when I saw they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? This verse I've heard many, many times where people say, see, Peter was eating pigs and sleeping with prostitutes and doing all kinds of sinful stuff, living like the Gentiles. Now, what Paul means is, if you're being a hypocrite and pretending that the Gentiles are not your brothers and Messiah, you're ignoring the fact that the gospel is for everyone. Salvation is by faith, Jew or Gentile, one and the same. That afterward, we're one new man. Why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews, meaning... Why would you force them 
to be circumcised and live according to Jewish rules and regulations when you know that's not where salvation comes from. Go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. 20 or 21? 28. 28. See, I missed on there. Matthew 28. I get too excited. Much more prophecy gets fulfilled this weekend, and you won't be able to stand me next week. <laughs> Verse 18, Yeshua came and spoke to them, saying, what does that word saying mean? It's a quote. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. Once more, the word disciple does not mean convert. It means student. It's the Hebrew word Talmudim. Of all the nations, who are the nations? They're the Gentiles. So they're to make students of the Gentiles, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which requires repentance, etc., confessions of faith. Verse 20, what do you teach a student? Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And along with you always, even to the end of the age, amen. What are they supposed to teach them? Which commandments? All of them. All of them? All of them. What did 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19 say? Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. Does the New Testament tell us that God's commandments are for everybody? Yep. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19 means. For everybody. Let's look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. If I am not keeping God's commandments, that's called lawlessness. What does Messiah say about those who practice lawlessness in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23? Are they on the right road going to heaven? They are not. Can they repent and turn around? Yes, yes they can. Should they do it soon? Yes. I recommend it. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Messiah. What's the gospel of Messiah? Salvation is what? By faith. For it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. If the just are living by faith, are they living in sin? No, they are not. Verse 18 goes on. For because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness. What's another term for unrighteousness? Lawlessness. Lawlessness. 
I'm always a little amused when I get emails from people. I get a lot of emails from people that say, which sins can I not give up and still get into heaven? <laughs> yeah, really. Can you give me a list of those that, well, I can keep doing these and just slide in? The answer to that is, you need to repent, son. Okay. Back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. Whoops, I see a red number one out there. What do we say to people that all the commandments Yeshua requires us to keep are in Matthew chapter 19, verses 18 to 19? That's a good question. I would say, first of all, let's go to Matthew chapter 4. Verse 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. But he answered and said, quote, It is written. If it's written, is it ever going to change? No. no. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The commandments in the Hebrew are called the words of God. So which word did Messiah tell us we should keep? Every word. And then to Matthew chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. For assuredly I say to you, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle by white will by no means pass from the Torah, the law, until all is fulfilled. That word fulfilled is genitai, and it means till all prophecy has been fulfilled and we're in the new heavens and new earth. Since we are not there yet, how many letters or pieces of a letter have fallen out of God's commandments? Not a one. Verse 19, whoever therefore, what does that word whoever mean? Me. Any old person. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's a question there because people will say, well, you know. Yeah, people say all kinds of things. things. You know, I can teach them not to keep it all, but I'm still going to get in. That's not what it says. Nope. And then you've got to go from there to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The original question is, what do we say to people who say that all the commandments Yeshua requires us to keep are in Matthew 19, verses 18 to 19? Well, we're going to go there in a minute. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, In our English, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. What the Greek says is every scripture is God-breathed. Theonuptos, meaning it came through God's lips. So every word that came through God's lips is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So then let's go to Matthew 19, since somebody asked, what exactly does that say? Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 18 to 19. He said to him, which ones? Yeshua said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does it say anything in there about you shall not lie? No. But what does the scripture say? All liars have their part in thee. Lake of fire. So as soon as you say, uh oh, that's not in this list, what does it tell you about this list? It's not complete. It's not a complete and exhaustive list. Yeah. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, while you keep them fingering Matthew 19. You're going, why didn't you tell me that before? Because I didn't think of it. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators. Where's fornicators in Messiah's list? It's not there. Not there. Nor idolaters. Not in that list in Matthew. Nor adulterers, that one is. Nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. They're not in the list in Matthew. Nor thieves, that's there. Nor covetousness, mm, not there. First Corinthians 6. 6 verses 9 and 10. Mm -hmm. Nor drunkards, nor virus, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So 1 Corinthians 6 has lots of sins, lots of commandments broken that are not in that list of 18 to 19. The limit test is 1 John chapter 2. So let's go over to 1 John chapter 2. It tells us how to tell if you're saved or not. If you want to pick and choose and say, I will follow these commandments and not those, you're no longer following God. Amen. You've become your own God. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He says, I know him and does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. Those are the kind of things I would say. Of course, honestly, nobody's ever said that to me. But they've said all kinds of other things. <laughs> back to Galatians chapter 2. Wait a minute, we'll have to go about 19, Matthew. You said keep a finger there. That's because we were comparing lists. Oh, okay. How can you compare the list if you've got what's in it? Of course, maybe you memorized them all. Well, I remember, I got pretty good short-term. Okay. <laughs> In Isaiah chapter 56, 
who from the Gentile world gets to be in the Messianic kingdom? Those who keep the Shabbat and hang on to that covenant. What scripture is that again? Let's turn back to Isaiah chapter 56 and look. I just assume you guys have the scriptures memorized, but sometimes it doesn't hurt to turn back and just refresh our memory. Isaiah 56. (laughs) The Sabbath is one of the most important scriptures in the Bible. In Exodus 31, it's called the sign that we worship the true and living God. It's like the wedding ring. But here in Isaiah 56, we'll do verses 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to 6 for the short version. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness. For my salvation, my Yeshua, is about to come, and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who lays hold on it. That English does not convey the meaning. Isaiah 56, we're looking at verse 2. We started with 1, but now we got down to 2. That first man in verse 2 is Enosh. The second man is Adam or Adam. So if they just said, blessed is the Enosh who does this, you can make an argument he's only talking to Jewish people. So that's why he adds, and the son of man, Adam. Which of us descend from Adam? Everybody. So to say, blessed is the Enosh who does this, and Ben-Adam who lays hold on it, is to say I'm talking to every person in the world, Jew or Gentile, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Any evil. And then in verse 6, also the sons of the foreigner, that word there for foreigner is nekar, N-E-K-A-R. And it is a non-Jewish person who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain. What's a mountain in prophecy? Kingdom. Kingdom. And make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's something else that was in the prophetic news this week, if you didn't catch it. When they talked about the temple being rebuilt, the third temple, and the train going from Ben-Gurion to the Temple Mount, they made it clear, they said, this temple will, will be a house of prayer for all nations. That everyone, Jewish or Gentile, can bring their sacrifice up to this temple. Yep. Even them I'll bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. That's the temple upon which Messiah will sit. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
So which commandment does God separate from all the rest? In verse 6, everyone who keeps from defiling my Sabbath and holds fast my covenant. So my covenant includes them all, but the Sabbath he lays out there separate. That's because it's his Sabbath. That's because it's his Sabbath. You're absolutely correct. Back to Galatians 2. Time's running short, but we have a little more. Verse 15. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles. Paul says, we who are Jews, native born, we're not sinners like the Gentiles. <laughs> but what does he mean by that? He explains it in Romans chapter 3. So let's go back to Romans chapter 3. What advantage then as the Jew? Romans 3, starting in verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the prophet of circumcision? Much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. What are the oracles of God? The scriptures. Meaning the Jews have the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God in the Torah. The Gentile nations back in Paul's day, did they have copies of the Torah? They did not. So that's what he means. He says we as Jews learn the commandments from the time we were little. Maybe we didn't do them perfectly, but at least we knew what to do. The Gentiles... They don't even know what to do until we allow them to come into the synagogue and learn. And that's his point in verse 15. Verse 16. Knowing, notice there's not a period at the end of 15. Knowing, we who are Jews by nature, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. So he says, we know the commandments of the law. We've been trying the best all our lives to keep the commandments of law. But even we know that's not how you're saved. But by faith in Yeshua the Messiah, even we have believed in Messiah Yeshua. That we might be justified by faith in Messiah and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So Paul testifies of himself. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, circumcised on the eighth day, trained in the Torah at the feet of Gamaliel. And how was I saved? By faith. So it's not by the works of the law that anyone gets saved. Let's do some cross-references. Psalm 143, verse 2. Psalm 143, verse 2. Psalm 143, verse 2. David writes this. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for in your sight no one living is righteous. 
If we had to be saved by works, who's going to get saved? No one. Not from the Jewish world, not from the Gentile world. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep of what? Gone astray. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And Romans 3. So whether we're looking at the New Testament or the Old Testament, it says the same thing. I'm a sinner and so are you. Romans 3 verses 9 to 18. Paul just collects all these statements from the Old Testament. Which tell us we're all sinners. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. That's not what it says. It's upantos means not entirely. Not entirely. Meaning we knew what the commandments were. We still didn't do it. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin as it's written. He goes right back to the Tanakh. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Asp is a serpent. Asp is a serpent. Just ask Cleopatra. Yeah, yeah, that's the one she learned. Hugging is bad. And with that, we have hit the 8 o'clock hour. We must stop for tonight. Let us close in prayer.